This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. God, this morning we, we do continue to pray for uh, Tony and his family, Lord, for Paulina, who's lost her husband and sister. Be with them, God. Comfort them. Give them strength and hope in Christ. Be with us now, Father, as we open your word. We ask for the sake of your son and for his kingdom. Amen. Well, as we consider this morning Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, as we've been singing about this morning, I want to remind us that as we come to this season of Christmas, this is a time that we always will celebrate Christ, we'll celebrate our Savior, we will remember Him, we'll sing songs about Him, we'll hear messages about Him, we'll pray to Him. I want us to consider the importance of the incarnation this morning, of God becoming flesh, God dwelling amongst us, becoming like us, and how important that was. And as we oftentimes during the Christmas season, we will reflect on the story of Jesus' birth and and the manger and the the shepherds out in the fields and the wise men coming. Uh, That's a very familiar story for us as as we remember this Christmas season every year. This morning, I don't want to dwell so much on that, but what is the significance of Jesus coming? Jesus taking on human flesh. What does that mean for us as believers, as those who who know Christ and love Christ? Well, one of the things that sometimes people might say in their bah humbugness is, well, we're never commanded to celebrate Christmas, which is true. There's no biblical command to be reminded of the birth of the Savior and have a celebration for him. But God put his birth in his word for us, didn't he? So that we would remember his birth. So anybody that tells you, bah humbug, there's no command to celebrate Christmas, well, the whole book of the Bible is about Jesus coming to be made flesh and to dwell among us, and that wouldn't happen without the birth of Jesus, which God recorded for us in the scriptures to be reminded of. As we come to this point, we do want to be pointing out that what is true in terms of what God has commanded us to remember is the death of Christ which without the death, without the birth of Christ, the death of Christ would not have happened. But Jesus' point in coming to this place, his purpose for that was to be like us and then to die for us. We've heard these last few weeks that Jesus was our prophet, he was our priest, he was our king. We've been reminded about that the importance of those three those three character qualities, those three positions that Jesus holds as the one who is is those three things for us ultimately. He is the greatest of prophets. He is the greatest of high priests and he is the greatest king. And he is also Emmanuel. God with us, God in human flesh. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter two this morning. Philippians chapter two. We are commanded to remember the death of Christ. We do that every Lord's table, at least. 
And as I mentioned, the death would not have happened without the birth and without Jesus coming to be with us. So the birth of Christ is most important. It's of high importance for us. Read with me Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes these words to the church in Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is encouraging us to look to Christ and to be like Christ. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Is that not what Jesus did when he came to be in flesh? Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. That is a wonderful passage that reminds us very clearly about the purpose of Emmanuel, the purpose of God with us, why Jesus came, why he took on flesh for the purpose of going to the cross, of being obedient to the Father to the point of death. And what I'd like to examine a little bit this morning is what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What happened when he took on human flesh? What was it like? What, was, what, do, we, what do we know about Christ as he did that? I know oftentimes I, I will think about that idea of what was it like to be fully God and fully man walking the earth for Jesus? And maybe you're like me, maybe you've wondered, what was Jesus like as a little boy? What was he like as a teenager? I've, I've thought about why God didn't give us more information about Jesus' childhood. And it was probably to spare parents in some ways. If we saw Jesus, this perfect little child, in story after story of him growing up and everything he did was right all the time, moms and dads, boy, how would you treat your children? <laughs> Why can't you just be like Jesus? He was fine at your age. Three years old, he had no issues. What's wrong with you? you know, we see a glimpse of Jesus as a teenager, 
well, almost a teenager, preteen, 12-year-old junior higher in the temple, amazing the teachers at the things that he said and the questions he asked of them. Now, I don't know how many of you have spent any time in youth ministry. I've been there a little bit. (laughs) 12-year-olds don't amaze you at their theology. (laughs) They don't. Every once in a while, they might surprise you, but they don't amaze you. That's the one glimpse of Jesus' childhood that we have. After reading about his birth, we get that one glimpse. And Jesus' task that he, as a 12-year-old, states is to be about his father's business, to be doing his father's will, his father's work. Well, what happened as Jesus emptied himself? And I I would encourage you to think about this because it's hard to imagine what it's like to be fully God and fully man. None of us can know what that is like. We can only imagine what it might be like and, and consider it based on what we see in the Gospels. But I'd like to just touch on a couple of points about what happened when Jesus emptied himself, when he took on human flesh, and what didn't happen. First, let's start with what didn't happen. If you have your notes, the first point there, when Jesus was was born, he did not lose his deity. He did not lose his deity. We, We sing about and we talk about Jesus being fully God, remaining fully God while he, was, while he was on earth, but he didn't lose his deity. Consider a, a few passages that just give us some glimpses of that. First, uh, from John chapter one, verse 14 and verse 18, John writes these words, and the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And down at verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John is reminding us that Jesus was full of grace and truth, that, the, that he reflected the Father to us. He reflected God to us because he was capable of doing that, because he was fully God. In Colossians chapter 1, Verse 19, Paul writes these words to us. For in him, speaking of Jesus, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians, Paul continues. It says, For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus did not lose his deity when he came to earth. He retained that. He retained that. It's important for us to remember that because oftentimes we can think of God as only, uh, Jesus as only God or sometimes only man and that may skew our vision of him, that may skew our understanding of him and paint for us an incomplete picture. Let me just give you two examples of how God, how Jesus in, in his form as human retained that fullness of the deity that he possessed. Two examples for you in your notes. One is just this, one is that he was still omniscient. Jesus was still omniscient, he retained that. 
We see many examples through the Gospels of this. Uh, when Jesus was calling his disciples, for example, before he went to call Nathan, the, the word tells us that he saw Nathan under the tree before Nathan and Jesus even met. Remember, Nathan was the one who was, who, can anything good come out of Galilee? And then very quickly, he says, oh, you're, you're the son of God. But Jesus saw him before he even met him. Another example of that is that Jesus, as he chose his disciples, he knew that Judas was the one that would betray him. He knew that. He chose him for the purpose of betraying him. Now we might think, what a failure. Why would you choose the guy that's going to ruin everything? That's what probably the other disciples might have thought. Bad choice, Jesus. Not the best decision that you made. Yet he made that with full knowledge, knowing exactly what Judas would do. That Judas would be the one who with a kiss would betray him to the cross. We also know through the Gospels that Jesus, he knew the hearts and the minds of men, didn't he? Wouldn't that be a blessing when you're trying to evangelize somebody? If you just knew their hearts and you knew their minds, you knew what they were thinking, and you could speak to those thoughts that they're not expressing. You could speak to those concerns. You could speak to those questions that they have. Jesus knew that. He knew the hearts and the minds of men. We see examples where he knew what the Pharisees were questioning in their heads as Jesus was teaching and preaching. And sometimes Jesus would answer the questions that they are thinking but not asking. He knew those things. Jesus retained the omniscience of his deity. Uh, another example of Jesus retaining his deity is his omnipotence. Jesus was still all-powerful. Even while he was on the cross, he said, I could, I could summon angels, or excuse me, in the garden, I could summon angels to defend me, Peter. If you look at the different examples of what we see in the Gospels of Jesus doing miraculous things, what's the first thing he did? He showed power over water, turned it into wine at a wedding, the best wine. Some of you may enjoy wine and you've got your, your brands, you've got your years that are the best ones that you want to find, you want to you get, you want to sample those. Well, Jesus made better wine than what you've ever had. He had power over that. How many times did we see him display his power over nature? When the disciples were fishing, catching nothing. Guys, just throw your nets on the other side. That's where I told all the fish to go. And they throw their nets in. Like, okay, whatever, Jesus, we'll, we'll entertain your, your thought. And they can't pull up what's in the net. He had power over the fish. As Jesus was, was in a storm, he has power over the waves, over the storm. Jesus, we're going to die. Peace be still, and the storm is done. Jesus displayed his power over disease. How many times did he go into a city? And the word will tell us that all of the sick were brought into that city, or, or were brought from that city to go meet Jesus. Jesus. 
and he would heal them all. He had power over disease and sickness and illness. We see that he had power over the demons. They were fearful of him. Is now the time, Jesus? Is is this it? Please don't, don't cast us away. Cast us into the pigs. And he does. And I'll never understand why the pigs ran off the cliff. But they did. That will be one of those questions down the line that I will ask later. Why why'd the pigs run off the cliff? I don't understand that one. No explanation given. Not fair. Makes us question. That's okay. We'll have a lot of questions answered, I'm sure. Jesus displayed his power over people. There were times that some of those who wanted to kill him were surrounding him and he passed through them because his time wasn't yet. Jesus displayed his power over death. The girl that he raised, Lazarus, that was raised, even himself, he said, no one has the power to kill me. I lay down my life and I will take it up again. Jesus retained his omnipotence. Those are just a couple of examples of how Jesus retained his deity. He did not lose it. And second point on your notes, the flip side, what happened when Jesus was born? When he was born, he added humanity. He added humanity to him. He took on a form that could die. He took on a form that could be sacrificed. But when Jesus took on humanity, as we read in Philippians 2, Paul tells us he emptied himself. He did not count equality with God, something to be grasped after, but he emptied himself. What, what was the emptying? What was that part? And I think that stems from the, the taking on of human flesh. A couple of points of, of how that added humanity affected Jesus, I think we see in these ways. He was no longer omnipresent. If you, if you read through the story of Lazarus in John 11, what is, what is told to Jesus after he's told that Lazarus has died? Jesus, if you are only here, if you are only present with us. Jesus was in one place at one time while he was here on earth. A second point, second example of how humanity was added is Jesus now needed things like food and sleep. Matthew chapter four, verses one and two, where, where Jesus has come, come out of the temptation or the, uh, the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness to be tempted by, by Satan. Matthew first tells us that as Jesus finishes that 40 days of fasting, that he was hungry. He was hungry. Some of you might be sitting here a little hungry right now. Maybe you're a little rushed out of out of the house this morning, didn't get your Captain Crunch, feeling a little grumbly, can't wait for lunch. I know for me, it's homemade lasagna. Mmm, delicious. Thank my wife for that. Jesus was hungry. He felt hunger as we do. You can imagine after 40 days, he was very hungry. 
He needed food and he needed sleep. In Matthew chapter eight, we read about how Jesus, when he was in the midst of that storm that I mentioned a few moments ago, he was in the midst of that storm on that boat and the, the fishermen that were on that boat were afraid for their lives. These are professional fishermen who've been through storms. They think they're going to die. Jesus is sleeping because he's so weary. He's so tired. We see other times where Jesus went away to rest because he was weary, went away to be with the Father alone, to recharge, to pray, to be quiet. Things that we need, aren't, aren't these? These are things that we need. We need food, we need sleep. Jesus took those things on so that he might know us, so might, that he might be the best prophet, priest, and king, and savior. That he would be like us. The third point I'd like to, to just bring about from this second point of Jesus being, uh, when he was born, adding humanity, is that, and this maybe is the most significant part of what happened, is that his glory was veiled. His glory was veiled. As you reflect back on uh, Moses, when he asked God in Exodus 33, God, show me your glory. Let me see your glory. What did God tell him? God told him, Moses, no one can see my face and live. I'll show you the back of me. And even that lit up Moses' face. Right, if you remember the story, he had to put a veil over his face because the glory of God was reflecting off of him so brightly that the Israelites could not bear to look at him, so he had to keep a veil over his face. Well, that's a picture, isn't it? Of Jesus in some way veiling his glory. Because if he was in his fullness of glory, we could not, we could not stand. We could not look at him because of our sinfulness, because of our state that we are in. So his glory was veiled because we could not stand. And I think this is probably the most significant part of what it means that Jesus emptied himself, is that that glory was was covered over, it was veiled, it was set aside. In John 17, one of the things that, one of the ways that we know that Jesus did this is because in John 17, five, when he is praying in the garden, before he goes to the cross, he asks the Father to restore to me the glory that I had before when I was with you. So we know that that glory that Jesus had, he'd set aside for you and for me so that he might come here, God in human flesh, to be one of us, to be with us. What would have happened if Jesus did not veil his glory? I wanna encourage you to just think about that for a moment. If he did not do that, we have a few glimpses of that in scripture, don't we? A few times where a little bit of Jesus' glory was revealed. Think about Luke chapter nine in the transfiguration. Consider that, Luke 9, 28 through 36, if you wanna jot that down and look at that later. That's when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and the, the disciples fall asleep. Moses and Elijah appear, 
They're talking with Jesus. The disciples are awakened and they see just the brightness of part of Jesus' glory displayed. And good old Peter, who loves to talk, says, God, it's good that we're here. I don't know, I don't know what Peter was thinking. It was, it was right, he was right. It was good that we're there, but can you imagine what was going through Peter's head? I'm not even sure if he was thinking anything beyond. It's, it's good to be here right now. But this cloud descended over them and the disciples became fearful. That, after just a small glimpse of the glory of Jesus being displayed. Just a small glimpse. Consider also Paul's encounter with Jesus. Acts chapter 9. As you remember, as Tony has preached through Acts, Paul was a Pharisee, a wonderful Pharisee. You can put those two words together. I'm not sure you can, but he was a really good Pharisee. He was on his way to throw Christians in jail, maybe to kill them. And he had papers that said he could do it. And then Jesus stops him. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what happened as Jesus did that? This blinding light appears. Part of the glory of Jesus in front of Saul. And this voice of soon to be his savior pierces Paul's heart, changes his life forever, forever. Consider also Revelation chapter one, when John is on the island of Patmos and a vision of Christ is given to him and he sees Jesus in his glory. And what happens to John? And I'll remind you, because this, is, this has always been impactful for me. John was Jesus' closest friend on earth. And, and we often think, man, it, when I see Jesus, I'm going to run up, give him a hug, give him a high five. I'm going to, you know, fist bump, whatever it is that I think I'm going to do when I go see Jesus. And yet, here's John his closest friend on earth. He sees Jesus in his glory and he's afraid. The scripture tells us, Revelation tells us that he fell down as though dead because he's seeing Jesus in his glory. And what happens next? Jesus touches him on the shoulder, says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because it's me, your Savior, your Savior. Jesus' glory was veiled because it needed to be. But one day that glory will be revealed, won't it? And I know some of you are longing for that day to be soon. <laughs> Can't come soon enough. It will be a glorious glory, won't it? It will be a wonderful day when Jesus comes again. And that's what I'd like to look at next, very briefly, in your third point. It's when Jesus returns, when Jesus returns, it will be very different than the first time that he showed up. 
at Jesus' first coming, he came as a baby and few knew about him. The Jews, they knew that the Messiah was promised. They knew that he would come. They were looking for him. There are many false messiahs that made their way uh, across their paths from time to time. Many who claimed to be the promised Messiah, but none of them panned out. So the Jews knew, but not really anybody beyond that. A few wise men who read the, the scriptures. Some shepherds were told. An innkeeper might have figured it out after he stuck him out in the manger. Hmm, should have found a room. Would have been better. A few knew about this babe born in a manger. His first coming was humble, he was draped in humility. If you just looked at Jesus' life, he was just an, an average Joe. Didn't seem like anything special. Worked as a carpenter with his dad. Probably made tables and chairs, things like that. As Jesus grew older, he had no home of his own, no reputation. His life was, was draped in humility. Third aspect of his first coming is that he came to serve us. He came to serve many. We see that in so many ways, don't we? Even in, in John 13, as, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross and they're getting ready to have that last supper together, he and his disciples, what does he do? Even at that point, he is serving. Because there is no one there that picks up the basin and the towel and washes everybody's feet as was the custom before you would share a meal together. So Jesus does that. He picks up the basin. He picks up the towel. And as you read through the Gospels, that's the only time where Jesus actually tells the disciples, I am giving you an example. Do this. Serve one another. The lowest task at that time in that room was Jesus doing the washing of the feet. And he says, guys, this is what I'm telling you to do. Serve each other in this way. Take on the lowest tasks. Serve one another. That's what he came to do. Ultimately, his service is seen at the cross. His birth God in human flesh leading to that point of being sacrificed on the cross for sinners. Giving his life for those who did not deserve it. I'm going to read for you an excerpt from a sermon. It's actually an essay that was adapted from a sermon by Dr. James Allen Francis years ago. Some of you may have heard this. If not, well, you'll hear it now, so you'll say you heard it at one point in your life. This, this adaptation, this essay is called One Solitary Life. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. 
and for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of these things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. There's no doubt that Jesus has impacted the world more than anyone. And yet we look at his life, his first coming, and to many, it just seems insignificant, doesn't it? As you maybe talk to people that, that don't know Christ and speak about the gospel and speak about him, he just may not be that important to them. Just not that big of a deal. And yet there is no one greater, no one more significant than Jesus. Well, what about his second coming? As I said, it will be very different. We know that when Jesus comes again, he will come as king, won't he? King of kings and Lord of lords. And everyone will know, not a few, everyone. Revelation 1.7 says that all eyes will see him. All will behold this king who comes. And when he comes, he won't be humble this time. He will come in power and in glory. The trumpet will sound. The angels will come. He will be in glory and in power. And what he will do is he will raise the dead, all of them. You imagine what that's going to be like when every soul in human history is raised? Hollywood can't put a movie together that would depict that well enough. But that is what we will see when Jesus comes again. Every soul raised. Power and glory. And Jesus will not come so much to serve as he did the first time. He will come to reign. 
and to rule. And part of that reign and rule will be to judge those who do not know him and reward those who do. I encourage you to jot down Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. That's where Jesus is speaking about his return and how when he returns, he will separate the sheep from the goats. He will be the one who does that. He is the only one who can do that. None of us are in that position. None of us can do that, but he will do that. So his second coming will be very significant. He'll be very different from his first coming. That leads us to the last point this morning. Why the incarnation? Why the incarnation? Why that method of saving people? Two reasons I'll give you. One is this. First one is this. It is what we needed most. Jesus coming in the flesh to do what he did, to live the life that he did, to die on the cross was what you and I needed most. We needed that more than anything else. Today, we will hear uh, governments, we will hear organizations, we will hear people, we will read authors, who will all say, if you just follow what I say, I'm gonna make your life better. I know how to usher in utopia, just follow me, I'll lead you there. Man says that all the time. Man's striving after that. Man will not achieve that. No matter how hard or how far he goes, Jesus is the only one who can bring that. But what we needed was a savior. That puts us in a humble position, doesn't it? It puts us in a position of, of need, of desperate need. Because what the gospel teaches us is that God created us to know him and to walk with him and to walk in obedience with him and we failed at that. We fell into sin. We are stained with sin and that sin will only lead us to God's judgment and God's wrath being poured out on us for all eternity because we did not want to sit under God's rule. We wanted to rule. And if we're honest, we all still can struggle with that. Even as believers, we can struggle with, I want to run things. I want to be captain of my ship. I want my destiny to be fulfilled the way I want it to. We all can struggle with that still. But Jesus, he came to be the one who would first and foremost save his people from our sins. And we all need that desperately. And praise God for those of us who know him, that has been granted. We have been washed whiter than snow. He went to the cross. He bore our sins. He paid for them. For all who believe in him. For all who put their trust in him. Who all, all, all who turn away from their sin and turn to trust in Christ. Isn't that a glorious gospel? It's a beautiful thing to celebrate every Christmas, being reminded not just of the birth of Jesus and God taking on human flesh, but all that has happened because of that. It's a glorious thing for us to remember because every day that we live as believers is a day to rejoice, even on the worst day. And it can be hard on the worst day. 
Second point about why the incarnation. It was the best plan to accomplish God's ultimate purpose. It was the best plan to accomplish God's ultimate purpose. And if, if we're being honest, we know that God's ultimate purpose is for our will to be done and for our happiness to be in place forever. Sometimes we might act that way. But that is not God's ultimate purpose. What is God's ultimate purpose? I, I just I would sum it up in, in two points. His ultimate purpose is to glorify himself, which is what we need more than anything, to know and fully know God in all of his glory. And his second purpose is to exalt his son, to exalt Jesus Christ. If you view life and all that happens with those two brackets, I think you'll be in a much better mindset as you look at the rest of this world. That God is about the purpose of glorifying himself and exalting his, his son in all that is going on in human history. Because those are the two purposes that God is working towards every day, all the time, 24-7, 365. Now, do you think that God will accomplish both of those things? I hope you do, because he will. He will be glorified. And Jesus will be exalted. You and I might have, we might have chosen a different way for all this to happen. We might not have come up with the plan to kill Jesus for us. Right? We might have come up with a different plan. The same plan that every other religion comes up with. Let us just do enough good to counter the bad. And then God, you just, we make it in, we squeak in, you forgive us. Let us earn it. That's what every other religion says in one way or another. Let us earn it, God. Let us be a good enough person to get into heaven. And that won't work. What works is Jesus was good enough. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he died that we might know that life. We might come to know him. The incarnation was the best plan. The greatest plan. As I wrap up this morning, I'll just remind you that Jesus is still our Emmanuel. God is still with us. He ascended 2,000 years ago. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, but he, if you know Christ, He is with you today. He is Emmanuel for you today and he always will be and I hope that encourages your heart I hope that that brings joy to your soul that you can glory in that truth of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and as Paul wrote the end of that section I read from Philippians Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you bowed the knee? If you have, praise God. If you have not bowed the knee to Jesus yet, I encourage you to do so even this morning. To recognize that this babe that was born was God who took on our flesh and died a death that you and I deserved that we might know life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.